Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Susanna Schellenberg, Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at Rutgers University. Her new book, The Unity of Perception, Content, Consciousness, Evidence, is just out from Oxford University Press. How does perception result in thoughts about items in the world, such as dogs or flowers, and result in conscious states of many kinds, such as experiences of seeing red? How does perception provide evidence for our beliefs, such as the belief that there is a red rose in front of you? In her new book, Schellenberg considers these questions about the role of perception in mind and knowledge. She offers a unified account of perception as the capacity to discriminate and single out particulars. And she defends the explanations that her view, which she calls capacitism, provides of the difference between perception, hallucination, and illusion, the relation between perception and consciousness, and the way in which hallucinators and perceivers share some types of evidence for their beliefs, but differ importantly in others. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Susanna. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about the unity of perception. It's a very, there's there's so much to talk about. Um, we probably won't get to, uh, you know, well, we'll get to some of it, but at least uh, we'll be able to get some, to some of the main, main points that you discuss. Um, but before we do that, I want to uh, get a little bit of background about you. Um, what brought you to philosophy? Um, how did you come to work on this book and be interested in this particular topic? Um, yeah, so let me think. So throughout my teenage years, I was planning to become a professional classical musician, but um, I guess I saw a bit too much of the classical music world too early, and I didn't find it, or I didn't see myself as part of that world, and so that prompted me to change plans and uh, for a very short while, I sort of dabbled in jazz, but I wasn't really cool enough to be a jazz musician. And then I started studying math and, you know, fairly quickly switched to philosophy for, um, you know, reasons I found the questions intriguing. I was captivated by various specific topics. Um, um, yeah, that's, um, and then, um, how did I get to, um, thinking about the issues in this book? I mean, I was, I was interested in perception and experience for a very long time. I made lots of detours in thinking about it. And then as a graduate student, I sort of had this growing sense that in order to make progress in figuring out the nature of perception, we need to address sort of the issues in a much more integrated way than is typically done. Um, so it's kind of standard to, you know, explain the epistemological role of perception more or less independently of perceptual consciousness. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there are many um, views that appeal to the fact that perceptual states have a normal character to explain the epistemological role of perception. But typically, nonetheless, even if they appeal to it, their explanation for why perceptions have epistemic force and what accounts for their phenomenal character does not intersect. And um, that struck me um, as, or strikes me still as a mistake. And um, that's kind of at the core of the motivation behind the book, and uh, which is, you know, to give a unified account of perceptual content, perceptual consciousness, and, and um, the epistemic force of experience, so perceptual evidence. Okay. Um, so uh, the subtitle itself kind of, refers to these three aspects. You 
you start the book um, establishing these motivations in terms of three questions. One, the epistemology question about justification, how perception justifies belief. Um, the mind, what you call the mind question, how does perception bring about consciousness or conscious experience? Um, and then the what you call the information question, which, which is how perceptual system manages to convert, you know, varying uh, informational inputs to uh, invariant sort of in, in environmental causes, you know, the objects that we see. Um, can you can you explain these three questions a bit and um, how your approach? I mean, you kind of hinted this already a bit, but how your approach differs from other people that also consider these questions? Yeah, I mean, the three questions sort of correlate with with what I take to be sort of the three core roles that perception plays in our lives, you know, which is to bring about conscious mental states, to, you know, justify beliefs, yield knowledge, and then to, you know, three, to, you know, accomplish this miraculous feat of converting variant informational input into mental representation, representations of invariant features um, of the environment. And um, so, you know, there are obviously lots of other questions that motivate philosophical accounts about perception, but I think one could make a case that those three are sort of the core three um, questions. And, you know, how my approach differs from others that consider these questions. Yeah, so I, I mean, I briefly hinted that I think, um, you know, it's standard to sort of um, not treat these three roles of perception and thus those, you know, you know, those three questions as kind of intimately conjoined, you know. So to give you an example, like, say, um, like dogmatists and, you know, evidential internalists, um, you know, obviously appeal to both phenomenal character and um, and the epistemic force of experience, but they do so by positing a particular rule for justification, namely, you know, that if it perceptually seems that P, then one has prima facie justification for P. So, you know, so the view is kind of neutral on how and why perceptual states have phenomenal character. It just sort of appeals to the fact that we all agree on that they have some kind of phenomenal character and then goes from there to um, positive rule for justification, and um, and similarly, or in a different way, uh, you know, reliableists argue that the epistemic force of perceptual states stems from the reliability of the perceptual system, and if reliableists give any account of phenomenal character, it's you know completely independent of this reliableist account of the epistemic force, and so uh, and so what my view does um, is that um, I know what my view is. Makes, what makes my view distinctive is that I answer all three questions in terms of one key property of perception, namely the property of employing um, perceptual capacities and more specifically, um, you know, capacities to discriminate environmental particulars. Okay. So let me, let me just ask a, some somewhat skeptical question, uh, you know, because I'm in a department with you know, epistemologists who think that, uh, you know, explaining how the mind works, which is kind of fundamentally what you're doing uh, in part, uh, th that's not really an epistemic issue. And sure, so, sure, yeah. do you see? And so, and so they'll just say, well, you know, yeah, it's fine to approach these from, you know, all three together, you know, the mind and information questions with the epistemology questions, but, we don't really need to give an account of, of, a, of you know, evidence or justification uh, because those questions are just, um, you know, it's like whatever your account of how the mind works is not going to matter in some way for those questions. So, I mean, you know, so as somebody who, would, who pushes back on the unity that you're giving? I mean, how, how would you respond to them? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, I mean, there are lots of things to say about that. So one is I'm very much focused on what people call meta epistemological questions. So I say a little bit in the book about how it is that, 
um, you know, perceptions justify beliefs. But my focus is on sort of a deeper question, which is, what is it about perceptions that they provide us with evidence in the first place? You know, in contrast to, say, imaginations that in some respects are quite similar to perceptions, but they don't provide us with any justification for beliefs, right? No one thinks that if I imagine a pig, I have justification for believing that pig. But, um, you know, everyone thinks that if I perceive a pig, I have a justification for believing that there's a pig there. And a lot of people, including myself, think that if I hallucinate a pig, I have at least some justification for believing that there's a pig there. Anyway, so, so the question I'm sort of focused on is different from what most epistemologists focus on, and it's a meta-epistemological question, and it's the question of, you know, what is it about perception that makes it, makes it one of those things, you know, like testimony and other such states that provide evidence for beliefs? Um, okay, so that's kind of a, a background issue. And so if that's the question, then you would think, well, look, uh, you know, perception is special in that it is one of those mental states that provides um, us, you know, that has epistemic force and provides us with evidence. Um, and, you know, uh, given that, um, well, and, you know, well, there might be good reasons to believe that the fact that it does that has something to do with the fact that it also has um, phenomenal character. Now, I actually, I actually don't argue for that, but one could argue for that. What I, what I argue for is just that there is this core element that yields both things. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, one could sort of insist and say, no, no, we need, it's better to give an independent account of why perception is the kind of thing that provides us with evidence and why perception is the kind of thing that, at least in some cases, has phenomenal character. And I guess in contrast, in, in response, I would say, well, um, isn't it better to give, you know, to explain both of those things in one fell swoop? Mm. Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned just before, right, the basic property perception is um, employing perceptual capacities. Um, and you also go into what is, what is that? Well, that is, as you put it, discriminating, a uh, capacity to discriminate in single out particulars. Um, so could you say a bit about that, uh, about the perceptual capacity to discriminate and single out particulars? Um, uh, yes, uh, let me think. There was so much to say. Um, so, um, where should I start? Um, well, so, I mean, I argue that perception is at its core discrimination and, you know, that the function of, you know, core perceptual capacities is to discriminate and single out particulars. And what I mean with particulars are just, you know, mind independent, external, concrete, actual, you know, objects, events, and property instances. Um, and that this idea that perception is at its core discrimination is very much rooted in, you know, vision scientists, in vision science and, um, neuroscience. Um, in fact, it's kind of, I talk a lot with vision scientists and currently especially neuroscientists, and they sort of find it surprising that it's even worth emphasizing that perception is at its core disc discrimination, since it's such an orthodoxy in vision science. It's sort of surprising that philosophers of perception have not paid more attention to this core property. Um, and But sort of to clarify the notion of discrimination in play, so I mean discriminating between actual mind-independent external particulars. And so I use the term in the way that vision scientists use it. And I don't mean um, discrimination understood as, um, for example, discriminating between relevant alternatives, the way a lot of epistemologists use the term, or, you know, carving out possibilities in space, possibility spaces, or, 
you know, noticing differences between mental states via introspection. Those are all fine ways of talking about discrimination, but I mean this sort of very specific thing um, of, you know, discriminating one independent external uh, uh, particulars. And, well, there's a lot to be said about uh, these perceptual capacities that we employ. Um, you know, they are um, it, over and above this idea that they function to discriminate and single out particulars. One is, and this is sort of the source of my, the externalism that runs throughout my account, sort of one is that um, they're individuated by external mind independent particulars. And what that means is that, you know, I have, let's say, the perceptual capacity to discriminate red from other colors. And I also have the perceptual capacity to discriminate scarlet from other colors. And, you know, those two perceptual capacities are distinct because one is individuated by, you know, red environmental particulars and the other is discriminated by, uh, individuated, sorry, individuated by scarlet particulars and you know, obviously there's sort of a hierarchical relation between those two and that the scarlet capacity is, you know, a subcapacity of the capacity to discriminate and single out red. And that's to say, you know, there's like a, um, um, you know, vast amount of perceptual capacities that we possess that, you know, stand in complex hierarchical, hierarchical relationships to each other and, you know, intersect with each other in various ways. And one sort of key um, part of my view is that any particular in the environment can be singled out with a range of different perceptual capacities. So, you know, I, if I see a, um, uh, you know, a green leaf or a light green leaf, I can discriminate it via um, employing the capacity to discriminate red, uh, sorry, green from other colors or by employing the much more you know, fine-grained capacity to discriminate, you know, light green or even chartreuse um, from other colors. And those are all, you know, good and fine ways to um, discriminate my environment. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me just ask, you know, a bit about both the discrimination part and the single out, singling out particulars um, part. So um, discrimination, you know, is pretty widespread. Uh, so you can have a, uh, you know, some sort of a robot that can discriminate large eggs from, you know, medium and small eggs. And then it, you know, puts the large eggs in the carton and it doesn't touch the other ones. Um, you can have bacteria that discriminate, you know, uh, uh, nutrient rich from nutrient poor environments, I mean, dis- discrimination is pretty widespread, and um, and and so I was just wondering if you know all these things perceive you know certain specific robots or bacteria or uh, you know plants even you know they certainly have very sophisticated uh, ways to perceive their environments. Um, but then on the other hand, I was also thinking you know, when I use my ears and I hear, say, the mo- the wind blowing through the trees, uh, it seems like I'm perceiving the wind uh, uh, or through my auditory sense, uh, but I'm not singling out a particular. Um, oh, right. Good point. So, yeah. so could, you, could you say something about, you know, I mean, it's a fairly, it, it's, it's a fairly, uh, I, I'm not sure how much is or isn't being sort of built into what you what you intend when you sure, say perceptual no, yeah. capacities are discriminating and singling out particulars. Right, right. Um, so I'll start with the last point. Uh, these are all really good questions, right? So I'll start with the last point, which is, you know, there are these kind of all sorts of weird particulars, like the wind or the sky, or maybe you would not want to call them particular. So I'm very um, uh, liberal about what qualifies as a particular, as long as it's external, mind-independent, and causally efficacious. So, you know, um, uh, and, uh, you know, so for example, I would say um, a gust of wind is by all means a particular, 
you know, like little like smells are particulars. I don't have strong views about how exactly we want to sort of talk about smells from an ontological perspective because my view is sort of neutral on pretty much all the sort of options out there as long as there is some sort of you know causally efficacious mind independent external thing that um can be discriminated and as long as there's some chemicals floating around you know which would be sort of the minimal way to talk about it you know i'm good to go um and yeah, so so I'm very liberal on the sort of front of how do we individuate particulars. I mean, one question you might ask is what about like, you know, a scene in front of me? Like, I wouldn't say that the scene itself is a particular. It's constituted by particulars. I mean, where, you know, I'm thinking of the scene as this complex arrangement of, you know, houses and trees and whatnot, you know. So I wouldn't say that that scene is a particular, but it's constituted by particulars. And I can, you know, use more or less fine-grained um, perceptual capacities to discriminate between those particulars in the scene. Okay, and so moving on to your uh, first question, which is a much harder um, question. Um, yeah, you know, obviously, like uh, lots of things discriminate, and we don't want to say that all those things perceive. No, no doubt, right? Um, and I'm not giving an explanation of what it is to be a mind. Um, and um, when I talk about these perceptual capacities, I'm talking about capacities that are, you know, personal level capacities where there is some element of volition involved in employing them or not. There's obviously going to be sort of a fuzzy boundary as to where exactly we are at the personal level or not the personal level. And there's, you know, complex things to say about that. But um you sort of brought in various um, potential discriminators who might may or may not be perceivers, such as plants and um, uh, I don't think you said computers, but like some kind of artificial robot. Yeah. Robot. Same right. Yeah. yeah. So like with plants, uh, you know, some people feel very strongly about plants. I, I don't, but um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that bacteria and most plants perceive, but take, you know, a Venus flytrap. I mean, it does some really complicated stuff. And I could be convinced that a Venus flytrap perceives. I don't have strong intuitions on this. With regard to artificial entities, there I'm quite inclined to say that they can perceive. Um, and now... Um, you know, that immediately sort of raises the question, well, do they enjoy perceptual consciousness? And I'm open to that as well. So I don't think of consciousness as some, you know, sort of mystical property that only very intelligent agents have or sort of, you know, human agents have. Um, and so I have no problem with, um, you know, robots, say, um, being conscious. I don't think, just to be clear, that there are currently robots um that are conscious but you know who knows what the future holds i mean and to sort of to sort of explain this a bit further you know take a a human like you and me and let's say they have you know an implant of some sort um you know a minor implant um that helps them hear better or see better you know this is a very real life example no one would question that they're perceiving Right. And let's just, you know, say they we add ever more implants. And I would say, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter how many implants this being has, it perceives. And then if you take this from the other direction, from where you start with a robot, I don't have um, any kind of good argument to say that robots do not perceive and could not be conscious. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, so it seems like just in general, these sorts of ontological questions about wh what it is that's perceived are not really critical to to your view. Is that is that correct? Um, say more what you what you mean with that, because I'm not sure I want um, to. As long as you get some sort of ontology of particulars, even though if those particulars are you know, maybe not intuitive. I mean, obviously one starts from a lot of intuitive particulars, like 
leaves and, you know, red and things like that. Uh, but when you get to things like the wind or maybe a flock of birds or, you know, chemical gradients or something like that, it, it gets a little fuzzy. It gets fuzzy ontologically. But from your perspective, it's like, well, that's just not something that I'm going to really worry about. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, since you brought flocks of birds, yeah, I would say like a flock of bird at a distance is, you know, is a particular, you know, a bunch of birds that you see very close up. I would say, no, no, you, you're what you're discriminating between are the particular birds. Um, and so, um, but I don't have, I don't have, um, and I don't, I, honestly, I don't think there is anything very substantial to say about when exactly we want to say that we perceive the elements of something and those elements are the particulars as we do when we see like a flock of bird from very close up. And when we see the whole thing as one particular without individuating the elements of it, you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't um, have anything. Uh, I mean, my, my account is basically neutral on how that of metaphysical issue gets resolved. Um, and yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, although th there is so, you know, again, I mean, it's a sort of all kind of exploring the, the idea of the capacitism. Um, uh, so there's also strands, you know, pretty strong strands in, in cognitive science and philosophy uh, where perception is sort of necessarily embodied. It's part of a, you know, dynamic feedback loop um, uh, where, I mean, there's a number of ways in which that idea can be articulated, which is not one where you would identify perception as being an ability or capacity to discriminate. Um, uh but where uh, the interaction between perception, uh, you know, behavior, um, the environment, all of these things are kind of one continuous loop where it doesn't even, doesn't make sense to kind of say, you know, this, this is the perception, the perception creates certain representations and then the representations provide certain justification or not, or something like that. Um, and so from, from your perspective, I mean, you, you don't really talk about in so much about embodiment or these inactivist sorts of views. Um, how do you, how do you respond to people who think that trying to explain perception without thinking about this whole embodiment behavior, environmental stuff is, you know, just itself is not the right way to go. Yeah. So my book is very much focused on just developing my positive proposal. And I sort of engage with alternative views, you know, just to the extent that it helps situate and motivate my view. And you're absolutely right. I, say next to nothing about inactivism, which is actually kind of funny because I initially um, was very interested in um, those kinds of views, but um, in this particular project of mine, it sort of doesn't intersect, but not because it's incompatible in any way, but because I see my view as one that could be kind of intertwined with an inactivist view. So, I mean, I haven't thought this through. Um, and, you know, perhaps a, an inactivist would say, no, no, the two views are in, incompatible. And then I would want to hear why that is. But I don't see any good reason why an inactivist couldn't say all of the things, you know, she says, while also saying that at the very core, I mean, uh, then maybe it has to be sort of um, qualified what exactly core there means. Um, perception is a matter of discrimination. You know, even the inactivist who says, oh, we're sort of intertwined with the things we perceive and that we perceive affordances, for example, that's one version of an inactivist view. Um, 
um, is going to say that we, um, well, let, let's not say what the, an activist says. What I would say is, oh, well, we, we discriminate the affordance. The, the affordance is a kind of environmental particular. It's an external mining independent property that the chair has. Um, I mean, there's lots of way, lots of things to say there, but I don't see my view as incompatible with that line of thinking. Um, and of course, a lot would have to be said to work out just how, you know, one has to sort of adjust various ideas. But mostly, I think if one would work that out, one would sort of, you know, add a lot of material rather than having to, you know, take material away from my view. Okay, good. Um, so I mentioned, I use the word capacitism, which is your sort of label. Um, I don't know if you want to say more about capacitism before we move to the various particularity theses. I mean, is there some, uh, you know, do you want to define for us what capacitism as the general view is claiming? Um, well, it's, you know, at its core, I mean, the idea is that perception is constitutively a matter of discriminating mind-independent particulars. And then you know, content, consciousness, evidence are each analyzed in terms of this, this key property. So I argue that perceptual content is constituted by employing these perceptual capacities. Um, perceptual consciousness is constituted by employing these perceptual capacities. And perceptual evidence is yielded by employing perceptual capacities. And to explain the latter idea just a little bit more, um, the idea there is that, you know, capacities um, function to single out mind-independent particulars. So I argue that you can employ them, like, even if you um, are hallucinating, um, but even in the in that case, the capacities function to discriminate mind-independent particulars, and um, uh, perception has its epistemic force, or perceptual perceptual states and hallucinatory states have their epistemic force due to due to this sort of world directedness of perceptual capacities. And sort of putting this in a sort of larger picture, the idea is that you know, according to capacitism. On the epistemological side, you know, evidence and, you know, allied notions such as justification and knowledge are understood in terms of the mental capacities employed, you know, by means of which these mental states are generated and um, where those mental states provide us with some kind of evidence. And so the notion of a capacity is understood to be explanatory basic. Um, and, you know, so to, and to contrast that with some other views in epistemology, I already brought up dogmatism, but, you know, like dogmatism would treat conscious mental states as explanatory basic and then posit a particular rule for justification, namely that, you know, if it perceptually seems to P, then one is prima facie has justification for P or, you know, knowledge first views, treat knowledge as explanatory basic and analyze justification in terms of a deficiency of knowledge. You know, reliabilism treats the reliability of perceptual or cognitive systems as explanatory basic and then analyzes evidence and justification as a product of this reliable system. And sort of by contrast, you know, the view I put forward um, and that others put forward who sort of appeal to capacities, they treat, um, you know, capacities as explanatory basic and analyze evidence, justification and knowledge as a product of the capacities employed. And I should say that, you know, when I say that perception is at its core discrimination, I don't mean to deny that, um, you know, there might be perceptual capacities involved in perception that are uh, not discriminatory capacities. So, you know, you might argue that perception at least sometimes involves recognitional capacities or attributive capacities. Um, so Burge, in his um, book, The Origins of Objectivity, argues that, you know, perception is fundamentally a matter of attributing, of attribution. Um, and I don't have a problem that with the idea that, you know, perception, especially more high level perception, could involve recognitional capacities and attributive capacities. But I don't see those capacities as necessary for perception, um, whereas I, I argue that discrimination is necessary for perception. And that's what I mean when I say that it's, 
you know, at its core discriminatory. Okay. Okay. Um, so to, to get to content, right. Um, well, there's a number of different moves. You, you, you call your view, the singular content thesis, but kind of prior to that, you go through a number of different particularity theses. Um, I'm not sure how much detail you want to go into here, but, um, uh, you know, I guess the question is just, you know, what is the singular content thesis? Um, that probably will bring in whatever particularity theses that you need to. Yeah. I mean, should I say a little bit? Oh, yeah. So the singular content thesis is basically the thesis that perceptual content is singular content. And I kind of build up to that thesis by arguing that perception is perceptual states are constituted by the particulars perceived. Um, and, you know, to tie this in with the idea of perceptual capacities, the idea is that, you know, we discriminate and single out particulars. And so, um, and the perceptual state that ensues from this activity is constituted by the particulars perceived, but also by the perceptual capacities employed. And so that means that perceptual states are particular and general all the way down. They're particular all the way down because they're constituted by the particulars perceived, and they're general all the way down because they're constituted by the perceptual capacities um, that we employ by means of which we discriminate and single out those particulars. And then, and this is a long argument that might not be appropriate for a podcast, I argue that due to, you know, the generality of perceptual capacities, with which I just mean that you can employ the very same perceptual capacities in lots of different environment and, you know, successfully single out a range of different particulars, um, and due to the fact that they bring about states that are either accurate or inaccurate of their environment, it, um, you know, once one accepts that perception is at its core discrimination, and once one accepts that um, we employ discriminatory capacities, then it's, you know, something akin to a terminological variant to then say that um, in virtue of employing these perceptual capacities, we are in perceptual states with representational content. And due to that um, particularity, um, he sees that perceptual content is singular content. Okay, so uh, who's, who's your main sort of alternative here? Well, the main alternative on the one side is the generalist who is, you know, who, um, you know, there are many versions of the generalist, but sort of the orthodox version is to say that perceptual content is general content, namely existentially quantified content. Um, um, so that's the alternative on the one side and the alternative on the one on the other side is a naive realist who says you know, who's totally on board with me with regard to perceptual, perceptual states being constituted by particulars, but who would deny that um, those particulars um, are singled out and discriminated by perceptual capacities, the employment of which constitutes content. So they would deny the, the general element. Um, so to put that more simply, like the naive, real, the naive realist would deny the general element and the um, general generalist would deny the particular element, and against both, I would say that perception is particular and general all the way down. Okay. Um, so then, uh, so the second question, or well, second element is is consciousness, right? Conscious experience, um, and there, I think you call your view mental activism. Um, so could you s explain what mental activism is? Um, yes. Um, so, so in a nutshell, the idea is that um, perceptual consciousness is constituted by a mental activity. Um, and, you know, I say a lot in support of that. And then my specific version of that idea is 
what kind of mental activity? Oh, well, the mental activity of employing these perceptual capacities. And I should immediately take a step back and sort of um, say why that's an attractive view um, by contrasting it with the orthodox view. So, so the orthodox view analyzes perceptual consciousness in terms of sensory awareness relations to some entity, and then you know, views differ widely as to what the nature of this entity is. So, you know, sense data theorists argue that it's a sense datum. Qualia theorists argue that it's a quali. Naive realists argue that it is a mind-independent particular. You know, it's been argued to be a property or a cluster of properties, an intentional object, a minonian object, and even a proposition. But, you know, what all these views have in common is that perceptual consciousness is constituted by entities or particulars of which we are sensually aware. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, these views, you know, have virtually no other commitments other than, than, other than, that, this, other than that core idea. And so it's a view that's endorsed by, um, it's an idea that's endorsed by views that discrete, disagree on almost everything else. Um, and, you know, there, I think there's sort of deep problems with all those views. And, um, and I think we should make a fresh start and, um, and, um, and, you know, the fresh start I'm kind of proposing is that we think of perceptual consciousness as constituted by uh, mental activity. And so, so as not to kind of overstate the radicalness of this idea, you know, if there is any sort of um, uh, forebearer of this idea, it would be adverbialism. Although, like in virtually every respect, my view differs from adverbialism. But in this one idea that we should think of consciousness as sort of a modification of our mental state, um, it, um, you know, that's an idea I share with adverbialism. I, I mean, I specify it in many ways and say all sorts of things that no adverbialist would want to accept. But um, I mean, I specified in that I want to say, no, no, it's not just a modification. It's an actual mental activity. Um, and then I should also say that in, in virtue of the fact that employing these perceptual capacities constitutes perceptual content, you know, my view of consciousness is ultimately a representationalist view, which, you know, arguably is sort of, at least in the U.S., sort of the default view of perceptual consciousness. But for me, the sort of, you know, um, the ground layer is not representational content. There's sort of a deeper layer, which is the perceptual capacities employed by means of which that perceptual content is constituted. Um, and to put that another way is to say, look, I mean, it means kind of next to nothing to say that perceptual consciousness is supervenes on representational content or is grounded in representational content, unless one gives sort of a very detailed explanation of what it is about that representational content, that it could be the kind of thing that, um, you know, grounds perceptual consciousness and, you know, my detailed explanation of that idea is that perceptual content is constituted by employing these perceptual capacities, which have all these properties such that they generate perceptual consciousness. Okay. So, so one of the questions, you know, as, as I was reading this part of the book was, you know, earl, earlier in the book, you, you know, when you uh, introduced the idea of the basic or core capacity, you know, perceptual capacity of discriminating or, uh, and singling out particulars, you, and this is what kind of prompted some of my questions about, you know, bacteria and robots and such, um, was that you, you also have a series of conditions, um, you know, so there's, there's a lot more that we didn't talk about, um, you know, surrounding that idea, but what, one of the things that you did mention do, do defend is is this idea that you know there's the perceptual capacity and then there are these possession conditions right um, and so it seems like one of the possession conditions was that you there were like four or five different conditions um, was that you had to be awake and aware or something like that um, in order to possess the capacity to discriminate 
Um, and, and that may sort of make me think, well, um, then that would rule out, it seems to me, at least, you know, again, unless, unless you're sort of saying, yeah, robots are conscious, bacteria are conscious, plants are conscious. Um, it would, it would seem to rule out a lot of cases where we think there is discrimination, but it's not clear that there's, that there's awareness or awakeness. So I was just, I was wondering about the, yeah, I was just wondering about how, how you kind of deal with this idea of mental activism, uh, and, you know, um, and then that sort of explaining how something is conscious, but then at the same time, uh, well, I'm, I'm, let me, let me put that somewhat differently, that the perceptual capacity to discriminate, et cetera, explains, you know, consciousness, you know, it's, it's active, it's, it's activity. Um, but at the same time, in order to possess it, it seems that you already have to be conscious. So, um, you clearly read the book very carefully um, to have, you know, um, seen that. But let me clarify. So I don't, um, um, uh, I, I don't think there's a problem there for the following reasons. Well, one is what I mean with awake. Okay, so, so one, so, so first, the idea with the possession condition is simply that you know, to possess a perceptual capacity. Um, the following needs to be true of one, that one would be in a position, you know, to discriminate and single out, you know, a relevant particular, um, namely a particular of the type that the capacity functions to discriminate and single out. So that in its core is the possession condition. And just to sort of explain it a little bit, what that means is that it's incredibly easy to possess capacities. Like if you're a brain in a vat, you can possess capacities because you don't need any kind of history of having perceived the relevant particulars. All that needs to be the case is that, um, you know, if you're perceptually related to a relevant uh, particular, namely a particular that the capacity functions to single out, then um, you would be in a position to discriminate and single out that particular. And then I add um, a number of, just clarifications to that um, to explain what it is to be in a position to discriminate and single out. And one is, um, and that's the one that you're sort of focusing on, is that you're awake and alert. But that doesn't mean that you're conscious. If that were the case, then, you know, yeah, it would be sort of badly circular. <laughs> um, actually, I'm not sure it would be circular, but it would build something in on the, in the outset that will be explained later on. Um, what I mean is really just like putting it in terms of computers that the on button, you know, the on button is the power button is on. Um, like if the power button is on, that doesn't mean you're conscious. That doesn't mean the computer is conscious, but you know, the computer is sort of in a state where it could possibly be, be conscious. You know, if the computer is, um, well, it's in a state that it's it's ready to operate. It's exactly right. It's, it's ready to discriminate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, if you're um, asleep, and you know a relevant particular is floating around you, um, um, well, okay, asleep is not the right word because it's not the right example because your eyes are closed. Um, assuming we're talking about vision. Um, let's say, you know, you're completely drunk or um, in a state of um, complete incapacitation, you know, your eyes are open, there's a relevant particular right in front of you, you're sort of not in a position to discriminate it, even though it's right there. And the reason is like, as I, I mean, to continue with the power button metaphor is that, you know, your power button isn't um, pressed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's so if, if, if awake, yeah, it's a very good point. If, if awake, you know, you awake is usually, you know, read as a, as a consciousness concept <laughs> basically. And, and yeah, you're saying I that mean, we should read it that way. Sure. I mean, 
I mean, this now sort of gets to different kinds of ways of thinking about consciousness. There's sort of the generic consciousness that you might talk about simply in virtue of not being, well, um, well, I would say you're conscious when you're asleep, um, but, you know, um, um, uh, you know, simply of being sort of sufficiently alert, as I would put it. And then there's sort of the state of consciousness you're in, in which you actually have some kind of phenomenal character. And I'm sort of talking about that latter state of consciousness, which is why I talk about sort of perceptual consciousness. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's, let's get to the epistemology part, because that's... Um, just, to, just to add a little footnote yeah. to what I just yeah. said. And I wouldn't call the first kind of what I call the first kind of consciousness, I wouldn't call that consciousness. Um, I would say just because your on button, your power button is on, doesn't mean that you're already conscious, but that's a kind of separate issue. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Yeah. That's good. No, that's part. fine. Cause no people, people do dis- distinguish between like state consciousness and, you know, creature consciousness or something or global versus local states of consciousness. But they would call them both consciousness. True, true, true. Um, but anyway, that that probably devolves into a different different sort of debate. Um, so disjunctivism, you deny. Um, so perception, hallucination, and illusion. You know, these are sort of standard cases in the epistemology of perception. Um, and you argue for a common factor view, right? There, there's. Um, you know, it's not that there's one, uh, you know, one account that we're going to give perception, and then we just give a different account of hallucination and illusion. You know, in your view, no, that sort of disjunctive move is incorrect. We have a common factor. But um, uh, you don't invoke something like sense datum, right, to, you know, draw the distinction. Could you, so could you, could you say a bit about your, um, your view of perception, hallucination and illusion and their, and their different sort of epistemic statuses? Yeah. So, um, so, um, you know, so one big part of my project is to bring capacities back as a way of analyzing the mind. And one interesting um, fact is that you know, until the 20th century, it was standard to analyze the mind in terms of capacities. I mean, going back you know, to at least Aristotle. Um, and then sort of with the linguistic turn, um, that changed and, you know, a lot was gained with the linguistic turn in terms of clarity. Um, but I think it's sort of a pity that we no longer appeal to capacities to analyze the mind. And, you know, an interesting different fact is that in the empirical sciences about, you know, the mind and brains, it is, you know, standard to appeal to capacities to analyze, you know, brain states and mental states. Um, partly, I think, due to the influence of, of Chomsky in those disciplines and his sort of idea of competences and performances, um, where those ideas are, you know, sort of analogous to my idea of capacities. Anyway, so that's the background. And then, um, and then you might ask, well, what's so good about analyzing the mind in terms of capacities? Um, and wait, before I answer that question, I also want to say that, you know, um, you know, insofar as, you know, I want to say that by employing capacities, we generate mental states with representational content. I argue we don't need to choose between analyzing mental states in terms of representational content and um, capacities. Uh, we can have both. Um, and so then going back to the, you know, the question I just asked, what's so good about analyzing them in terms of capacities? So I think there are lots of reasons why that's appealing. And for my purposes, the main reason is that it allows for an elegant counterfactual analysis of mental states on sort of three distinct but interrelated levels. So one level is, you know, employing the capacity. Um, 
full stop. Uh, the second level is um, employing the capacities in a particular environment where you either single out the relevant particular or fail to do so. And then the third level is, you know, the function of the capacity. And so, so this allows me to sort of answer your question more specifically. And what I want to say is that on the first level, employing the capacities, um, perception, hallucination, and illusion are on a par. Um, I want to um, analyze each of them in terms of employing perceptual capacities. Um, on the third level, the level of the function of the capacities, they're on a par as well. In each case, the capacities um, have the function to discriminate and single out relevant particulars. On the second level, however, um, the... Um, the three states come apart, right? Because in perception, you employ these capacities um, in an environment where the relevant particular is there. And so you discriminate and single out the relevant particular. Whereas in hallucination and illusion, um, you fail to um, single out at least one particular that you um, purport to single out. And I should add here that I'm sort of going with the uh, idea that hallucination is a state where, you know, there um, fails to be an object where it seems to you there's an object and an illusion is a state where um, there fails to be some property instance where it seems to you that there is a property instance. There's lots of sort of complex versions of hallucinations and illusions, but for my purposes here, I'm just going to go with these kind of very simplified ideas. And so what that means is that, you know, there's one level of analysis on which perceptions, hallucinations, and illusions are just on a par there's simply a matter of employing perceptual capacities. And I then argue that, um, you know, on that level, we have a content type that's in common between perceptions, hallucinations, and illusions. And on that level, um, we also have um, uh, perceptual consciousness. So that, which, which is to say, you know, same perceptual capacities employed, same content type, same perceptual consciousness. But then um, on the second level of analysis, um, things are different because, you know, in the perception case, you single out a particular, in the hallucination case, you, um, and the illusion case, you fail to single out a particular. Um, and, um, but then, you know, with regard to um, the question of why hallucination, um, or why um, um, perception is prioritized over hallucination and illusion, um, so it's prioritized because the capacities function to do what they do in perception, which is to discriminate and single out particulars. You can employ them derivatively in bad cases, but even in those cases, they function to do what they do in perception. So to sort of take an analogy, you know, let's say, you know, you have a bike, um, it's broken, you bring it to the bike shop, and then a few days later, you go and pick it up, and the bike is suspended in air, and you sort of spin the wheels, and you can see the, you know, all the functions of the bike are in place, but it's not doing what it functions to do, which is, um, let's say, to take you down the road. You sort of need to take the bike down from being suspended in air. And so the bike being suspended in air is sort of the case of hallucination. Um, the idea being, you know, the machinery is working well, but there's kind of something missing. Um, and obviously, you know, Minds are very different from bikes, and so this analogy breaks down very quickly, but um, maybe that um, helps a bit. Um, and so to add just a little bit to that, um, or to make that a bit more specific, so on the one hand, I want to say that perceptions, uh, sorry, perceptual capacities are fallible. And what I mean with that is just that you can employ them such that they, that they don't fulfill their function. Um, and that's sort of the core of this analysis on the first level on which perception, hallucinations, and illusions are on a par. But on the other hand, there's an asymmetry between perceptions on the one hand and hallucinations and illusions on the other. And the source of the asymmetry is that um, the capacities function to do what they do in perception, not what they do in hallucination or illusion, which is to fail to single out the relevant particular. Okay. So we're, you know, uh, the bad news is we're almost out of time. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> Sorry. The, 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 
Although my excuse is I actually sort of anticipated this when we started. I was like, we're never going to be able to get to all this. You know, there's there's so many intricate parts here. Uh, but maybe just to, to wrap that up, right, because, um, uh, you know, this difference between perception and on the one hand and hallucination and illusion on the other, of course, is, is important epistemologically, right? And, and so on your view, you know, you've got a perceiver and the pre- perceiver has good evidence uh, for their belief, say that the sun is shining. Um, and the hallucinator um, on your view has, has some belief, some evidence, but not enough, I think, to actually have knowledge. Um, so can, can you, you know, very maybe briefly kind of say that? say what your view yeah, is there? So, um, so I sort of distinguish between two kinds of evidence, phenomenal evidence and fact evidence, um, where, you know, very roughly speaking, phenomenal evidence is determined by how our environment seems to one. Um, and fact evidence is determined by the perceived particulars, you know, such that the evidence is guaranteed to be an accurate guide to the environment. Um, and to tie that in with what I just said, you know, phenomenal evidence is, you know, if you have same perceptual capacities employed, same content type, same perceptual consciousness, or same phenomenal character, and then you also have same phenomenal evidence. So there's kind of four things that sort of go hand in hand. Um, and then if you're in the perception case and the good case, and you employ that capacities and actually discriminate in single other particular, you have additional fact evidence. Um, and so then I want to say that, you know, the, you know, take a perceiver um, who sees the sun is shining and a hallucinator who hallucinates that the sun is shining. Both the perceiver and the hallucinator have phenomenal evidence, you know, simply in virtue of employing the relevant perceptual capacities. But the, um, the perceiver has additional evidence. It has additional fact evidence. Um, and now, I mean, from the first person perspective, of course, the perceiver actually scratch the of course, um, because not everyone would find that obvious. <laughs> but I, I want to say, or I argue, the perceiver doesn't know that she has additional fact evidence. So, from her point of view, um, for all she knows, she could be hallucinating. Um, but nonetheless, she's in a better epistemic position than the hallucinator. And then I argue that, you know, having fact of evidence is sufficient ev- evidence for knowledge. And so that means simply in virtue of having that fact of evidence, um, the perceiver knows, in this case, you know, that the sun is um, shining. So each of these ideas has sort of long arguments, but that's kind of the rough summary of the idea. And then, and then sort of a critical part of it is that, you know, the rational source of um, both kinds of evidence, phenomenal evidence and fact evidence, stems from a metaphysical property of perception, namely um, the perceptual capacities employed, and more specifically, um, the fact that these perceptual capacities employed uh, sort of provide a systematic linkage to the environment in virtue of functioning to discriminate and single out environmental particulars. And so this kind of gives us um, uh, externalist view of evidence that makes room for a substantial internalist component. And it's an externalist view of evidence that um, doesn't invoke reliability, um, is non-disjunctivist, um, and you know remains steadfastly naturalist. Right. Um, so that that sort of you know opens a, a very large can of epistemic worms, but, um, <laughs> but we won't have time. We won't have time to go into that. So um, so I'd like to close with a final question on what you're working on now. I mean, are you following up this book or have you turned to other subjects? What's what's on your plate? Um, yeah, so I recently got this grant to, um, so it's a Mellon New Directions Fellowship to study neuroscience for two years. And so that's what I'm currently doing. I'm also, you know, responding to various um, author meets critics sessions and um, book symposia on this book. Um, um, but I am um, talking to a lot of neuroscientists 
um, especially about discrimination. And they have a lot to say about discrimination, and it's quite fascinating. Okay, very good. Well, good luck with with that uh, with that fellowship. Um, but we are uh, we are finished with our interview. Um, so I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk about your book with New Books and Philosophy. Well, thank you. And thank you for all your um, excellent questions and for thinking about the book so carefully. I'm impressed um, that you took the time to think through it so carefully. You've been listening to my interview with Susanna Schellenberg, Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at Rutgers University. We've been talking about her new book, The Unity of Perception, Content, Consciousness, Evidence, which is just out from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor, one of your hosts. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.